So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's Valentine's Day, 1982. The Ocean Ranger, an offshore oil rig off the coast of Newfoundland, is riding out a storm. The weather off Newfoundland was bad. The sea was what the weathermen called State 8. Waves were 50 feet high, the wind blowing at 70 knots. At 11.30 p.m., the weather observer on the Ocean Ranger filed a routine report saying that the storm was extremely heavy, but everything on the rig was normal. It was a severe storm, but not an, what shall I call it, an exceptional storm. The storm was pushing waves to a maximum of 70 feet and winds to about 70 knots. The Ocean Ranger had withstood worse. Waves are slamming into the portholes on the Ocean Ranger. There's just a few inches of glass between the Atlantic Ocean and the rig's ballast control room. That's the room responsible for keeping the rig stable. A wave strikes the porthole and it shatters. The ocean pours in. We have water and glass down here. Two minutes later, all of the valves here on port side are opening by themselves. We need EL, electrician, down here. Shock on the panel. Something happened in that room. The control panel malfunctioned, or the crew trying to manually keep the rig stable made a mistake. Then it happened. Someone tried to operate the ballast control panel. The forward tanks flooded, and the rig began sliding into a list. The Ocean Ranger is listing, and it's difficult to imagine what that looks like. 
the largest and most advanced oil rig in the world, 25,000 tons of metal, is leaning to one side in the middle of a storm 300 kilometers away from the nearest shoreline. We are the Ardeco Ocean Ranger. are experiencing a severe list of about 10 to 15 degrees and are in the middle of severe storm at the time. Uh, request assistance ASAP. The Ocean Ranger is in trouble. Ocean Ranger, uh, Jack, are you there? Can you give us anything else on it right now? At one o'clock, a radio operator had received a message that the personnel on the Ranger were off to the lifeboats. And that was the last message we'd heard from the Ranger. Good evening. The biggest oil rig in the world, the rig called Ocean Ranger, is lying at the bottom of the sea. It collapsed and sank off the coast of Newfoundland in a fierce Atlantic gale. Three lifeboats went into the water. It was cold enough that the ocean spray froze instantly. Massive waves bore down on the vessels. Helicopters couldn't get close enough, but a supply ship called the Seaforth Highlander got near enough to a lifeboat that they could see survivors. We got a call from the Seaforth Highlander saying that he had found a lifeboat and it did have survivors in it, and that they was alive, and that he was trying to get alongside of it. You can hear the guys scream for help and things, I guess. They're pretty rough on us. The weather was extremely severe. We had uh, snow, freezing spray, water coming over the deck. I guess we can be lucky that we was among them, too. By the time we'd got to the Highlander, the lifeboat had been upset, the men had gone in the water, and when we arrived there, they were just there was just bodies in the water. There wasn't there wasn't survivors then, there was only bodies. Well at that time I just couldn't believe I never saw that many bodies before all at once. Right? I just just looked there and tried to figure out what's going on. Hope something. Well it'd be hoped to get one or two men alive, but nobody got anybody. It's my very, very sad duty to, to tell you officially the Ocean Ranger is lost. There were 84 people aboard, and at this point in time, we, we certainly cannot hold out much hope for survivors. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Newfoundland and Labrador has always been one of Canada's poorest provinces. So when they discovered a massive oil reserve just off the coast, politicians were determined not to blow it. It was only three years later that the Ocean Ranger sank to the bottom of the Atlantic, taking 84 men down with it. But this isn't just a story about a nautical disaster. It's a story about what happens when a poor province finds immense riches just off its coast and how that promise of oil wealth can twist history around itself. It's about a place that swore up and down it wouldn't fall into the boom and bust cycle 
Uh, every time I say anything about oil, I always say it, that it's on top of a foundation built upon renewable resources. And then promptly did just that. But it come down for a province that was awash in offshore revenue for several years. Now it's even worse off than it was after the cod moratorium two decades ago. And it's about the kind of magical thinking that takes hold when political leaders start to believe that oil will be the solution to all of their problems. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. The story of oil in Newfoundland began in 1979 when oil was discovered offshore. There are rumors of a major oil find on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, perhaps the largest oil discovery ever in Canada. News conferences are being scheduled and oil markets across the country are booming. But for Susan Dodd, it's a story that begins with a phone call on that tragic day in February of 1982. The first part is remembering the phone ringing at, you know, it would have been the middle of the night, say two o'clock in the morning, but I'd learn that later. I was in bed and heard mom, big old farmhouse, and uh, with no heat. My parents were horribly cheap about <laughs> heating the house. And uh, so hear mom running down the the hall to answer the phone. And then, you know, just the tones of voices, you know, something's bad. I, I figured it was my grandmother um, who had been unwell. And then I didn't, I wasn't uh, called to go to school in the morning. Her brother Jim was a rig worker, and he had been out on the Ocean Ranger that day. I remember Dad looking out the window and Mom saying, well, you might as well tell her. And so then we went into waiting mode, which was, um, what did Dad say? Something like, the rig's in for you. Jim's rig's in trouble and we're waiting for news. It wasn't long before Susan realized she would never see her brother again. They were still doing a search, um, but my dad had flown uh, with the, he was a navigator in the Air Force. So I think he he knew what the chances of anyone surviving that would have been. I think he knew early on. Jim was like a lot of the men on the Ocean Ranger that day. He was young and he came from a place with high unemployment and he was willing to do dangerous work out on the open ocean. For these, especially these young men, they needed to have jobs in a way um, in order to be considered human almost. So they would take any job that was available and they would put up with conditions that I think any reasonable person would be able to see were dangerous. Though Jim was a Nova Scotian, the vast majority of the men on the Ocean Ranger were Newfoundlanders. My name is Danny O'Brien. I was born at St. Clair's Hospital in St. John's, Newfoundland. I uh, grew up there just on the outside of the west end of St. John's. Danny worked as a diver. Well, you know, growing up in Newfoundland, of course, I'm surrounded by water. I'm from St. John's and uh, spent a lot of time out in boats when I was a kid and stuff and fishing. And the one thing I always wanted to do to intrigue me from an early age was scuba diving. After going abroad to work on other oil rigs, Danny found himself working on what was the largest, most state-of-the-art oil rig in the world, the Ocean Ranger. But the rig had a reputation. Before it sank, workers jokingly called it the Ocean Danger. The safety regime was terrible. It was abysmal. Um, A lot of people were unhappy. 
the Americans who ran the rig looked down upon Newfoundlanders. So these people were sort of like had a very redneck <laughs> uh, attitude, approach to things. Danny had seen things go bad on the Ranger before. In October of 1981, uh, I went to the bow lifeboat. It was an emergency. It was a complete calamity to cut it short. Workers weren't properly trained for evacuations. The rig itself had design flaws, and there weren't even enough lifeboats. Danny knew that if something went wrong, a lot of men could die. Even after a botched evacuation just a week before the disaster, the American managers maintained that the Ocean Ranger was safe. Here's Chris Kearney, who worked on the rig, speaking to a documentary crew. This hard-nosed tool pusher um, was um, trying to dominate the uh, safety meeting, um, you know, uh, by saying, this rig can't sink. He didn't say it, he more yelled, this rig can't sink! You know, this is a... Biggest semi-submersible in the world. And uh, there was laughs and guffaws, mostly from fishermen who had been on the water way longer than this guy had. After the Ocean Rangers sank, Newfoundland went into mourning. The bodies of many of the men were never recovered from the Atlantic Ocean, and two divers were also killed trying to move the wreck. Newfoundlanders demanded answers, and the provincial and federal governments held a joint inquiry shortly after. People watched it on TV. It was a, it was a it was a big deal, and it was a very public way of airing the responsibility and showing the kind of public prosecution system at least interrogating the people who were responsible for this. Right? They at least had to show up and face the community. The reasons for the disaster would be familiar to Commons listeners. Lack of regulation, a cost-cutting culture that emphasized profits over safety, inadequate training. So you've got all these untrained people being put on what is both a vessel and uh, a drill rig, where the side, the marine side, was completely ignored by the people who ran that rig. The lifeboats didn't work, and the guys weren't trained to use them. The men who were responsible for ballast control, for keeping the, the rig stable, were trained, quote-unquote, on the job, which effectively meant they weren't trained. It was a shit show. Susan says that it's the Newfoundland and Canadian governments who share the most blame. The ocean had just swallowed 84 men, and the huge majority of those being Newfoundlanders and they were responsible for it because there was no regulation in place specific to offshore work. It had only been three years since oil had been discovered offshore. And you could imagine that a disaster of the scale of the Ocean Ranger might threaten to kill the industry outright. But oil companies and politicians insisted that drilling continue and that's because, compared to the rest of Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador has always been relatively poor. But oil could change that all. Oil has always been seen as, if not the economic salvation of the province, then certainly one of the most important factors in its economic salvation. My name is Sean Cadigan. I'm a professor of history at Memorial University. In the beginning, Newfoundlanders were split about oil. 
Here's J.D. House, a sociologist, speaking in a documentary from the 1980s. The initial reaction in 1979, there was kind of two sides to it. One was a great euphoria, and you found some people going out and mortgaging their homes in order to buy shares in Gulf and Mobile and so on, on the one hand. On the other hand, though, there was a a reaction, a kind of a a fear within the society of, of what's this big boom that's coming going to be doing to us. The government pushed ahead. But when the Ocean Ranger sank, Newfoundland's new oil industry had a crisis of legitimacy. So when the rig went down, there was a challenge. Uh, you know, the work that they'd done was seriously, seriously threatened. And so they had to rebuild this promise of oil, offshore oil development as a, a kind of positive change in Newfoundland culture. That's when the narrative began to shift. Very quickly, it's a local sentiment developed in Newfoundland and Labrador that that was uh, that went something like this. It was, of course, a tragedy. The people who were lost on the Ocean Ranger were considered almost martyrs. Martyrs. No longer were they victims of corporate greed or negligence. They were martyrs. The 84 men who went down on that rig were seen as having sacrificed their lives for Newfoundland's economic future. And their sacrifice had to be honored. Local sentiment was that however we might feel about the need for safety offshore, we couldn't do anything that would jeopardize development by the private sector. This kind of narrative was pushed, especially by the oil companies and the government, onto a province that was still traumatized by the disaster. But at the same time, the Ocean Ranger story merged with the long history of naval disasters that have befallen Newfoundlanders, giving it the timber of inevitability. You're speaking to a community that is steeped in all of these songs and these stories of a kind of heroic loss in the open seas. And that narrative kicked in even at the same time as everyone knew that the guys who ran that rig really quite expressly hated Newfoundlanders. Even today, there are serious questions about the safety of these rigs. Danny O'Brien doesn't believe that the issue of lifeboats has been adequately addressed. The thing is, as I say, depending on the facility, if there's another accident and people have to evacuate for lifeboats, I don't give them much chance of them operating properly uh, because of the historic uh, uh, failure of these boats. In 2009, a helicopter en route to a rig crashed into the water, killing 15. The premier at the time promised a safety review, but it never happened. The number of people that have been killed is about 114 offshore Newfoundland. It's a very high price for the amount of activity that's gone on out there. Last year, the Northwest Atlantic was hit by one of the strongest storms it's seen in 30 years. The Hibernia oil platform withstood the winds and waves, but lifeboats were damaged. And the rig never stopped production. But all of these safety problems aren't even the worst part. Newfoundland's most far-reaching oil disaster was something else entirely. Eight years after the Ocean Rangers sank, the oil executives were popping champagne. The celebrations were in high gear today in St. John's. The multi-billion dollar Hibernia oil project off Newfoundland is set to go. The oil giants, the governments, and the contractors have all signed an agreement after spending more than a decade at the drawing board. It was the same field where the 84 men of the Ocean Ranger had died. Politicians in Newfoundland were determined to use this new resource in the wisest way. 
and to avoid the boom and bust cycles associated with oil. Here's a clip from that 1980s documentary that looked into the issue. Are we doomed to keep spinning around in the boom-bust cycle until our resources finally give out? If we just look at our history, you'd think that we are. But there is one place in Canada where some people are determined to challenge that history and to try to take control of the tornado into their own hands. There is probably no region of this country more in need of the economic boost that an oil boom could bring than Newfoundland and Labrador. Paradoxically, there is no region of the country that has shown more reluctance to plunge in. But despite their best efforts to avoid these booms and busts, Newfoundland walked right into the same trap. Part of the reason why was because of what happened just two years later. Good evening. The news was expected, but that didn't make it any less devastating. For at least the next two years, much of Newfoundland will lose a way of life. It's a moratorium on fishing for northern cod, a ban that will affect about 20,000 people and gut the backbone of the Atlantic fishery. It's still the biggest layoff in Canadian history. What we started to see from 1992 forward was the permanent emigration of working-age people to other parts of Canada. Many of those young people went to Alberta and Saskatchewan to work the oil fields. Newfoundland was now doubly dependent on crude. And just as the story of the Ocean Ranger changed, the narrative around Newfoundland's potential oil wealth also shifted. As unemployment and public debt began to skyrocket, oil came to be seen as the singular solution to the province's economic woes. We kind of assumed here publicly, I think, that, well, you you know, we don't really have to worry about this so much because we got this massive offshore oil sector that's going to generate all the money that's going to allow us to take care of these things. And the oil companies were able to convince politicians that they shouldn't keep royalties high on oil. Instead, they should focus on the indirect benefits, such as jobs and consumer spending. And for a while, that seemed to work out, especially in the 2000s when the oil price went north of $100 a barrel. All of a sudden, Newfoundland and Labrador was booming. Danny Williams, who was premier until 2010, began to increasingly put all of his eggs in the oil basket. Williams would become incensed if people questioned the sustainability of oil as an economic driver. Here he is arguing with a radio host near the end of his tenure. You know, the oil is gone, there's going to be nothing left. What about our children and our grandchildren? Well, I guarantee you, you know, I, you can, I'll certainly attest to that. And you, can, you and I can have a conversation 20 to 25 years from now, and you'll see what's left for our grandchildren and our grandchildren. And as well, by then, we will have wind on, we'll have gas on, we'll have the Churchill on, we will have repatriated the upper Churchill. A lot of wonderful things happening in Newfoundland and Labrador, and we don't need that kind of pessimism and crap coming out of your mouth in the morning, as I can tell you right now. By the 2010s, Newfoundland and Labrador did what many considered unthinkable. It became a have province. For the first time, it was sending out equalization payments instead of bringing them in. But that didn't last long. Sean Cadigan says that the government didn't have a long-term plan. So offshore oil royalties allowed the provincial government to put far more into our health system, education system, more government uh, 
uh, employment and paying those government employees better. The problem is, is that all depended on the availability of offshore oil revenues when offshore when, when oil was you know at a hundred dollars a barrel or more. And so when prices collapsed from 2014 on, we were left with a significant economic problem. We went into our bust. Gone was all of that early talk about saving for the future, for carefully using this new oil well. Much of it had been squandered. The rigs are still operating offshore, but that widespread prosperity that oil had promised has never really come about. Basically, it seems to me that what offshore oil revenue tends to do is like it's, it sort of holds out some kind of a promise to you. But it's just that. It's just a promise, and it's always just beyond your reach. You think you can almost get it, but it, it never quite sort of materializes. Today, the Newfoundland and Labrador economy is still struggling. Some people fear that the provincial government may actually go bankrupt. Oil itself wasn't what caused the economic calamity. Newfoundland and Labrador has other deep systemic problems. The cod has never come back. The population's been getting older. Big mega projects have failed. But things were supposed to be different. In those early years, the promise of oil had been to turn Newfoundland into a new Norway, to use those resources wisely, to save for future generations. But the promise of oil has yet to pay off, and Newfoundlanders are the ones who have paid the cost. The memory of the Ocean Ranger lives on in Newfoundland and Labrador. And every year, there's a memorial service held in Gonzaga High School in St. John's for the men who died on the rig. Ted Stapleton. Benjamin Kent Thompson. Guy Garneau. The first time Susan Dodd went, she was asked to speak. I was given the honor of thanking the community for this event as a family member. And I went and just raged against the oil companies and against the regulators for failing. I still feel that rage very strongly. Today, she doesn't think a memorial service is the place for that. But in her way, Susan has been trying to change back the story of the Ocean Ranger, trying to grab hold of that history herself and take it out of the hands of the oil companies and the politicians. A few years ago, she wrote a book about it called The Ocean Ranger, Remaking the Promise of Oil. I think it's important to keep reminding people about it and to keep retelling the story and to keep reminding ourselves that when these really terrible things happen in industry, if we haven't regulated them, it's, you know, it's not the fault of the cosmos and it's not the fault of capitalism. It's our fault for not regulating. The story that many people tell themselves about the Ocean Ranger, like the story they tell about oil, has changed over the years. But for Susan, it's a story about her brother Jim, a young guy who needed a job, who she loved for sharing books and music with her, and who died in the Atlantic Ocean with 83 other men so many years ago. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode was built on research and reporting done by CBC Newfoundland and Labrador, Susan Dodd, Mike Heffernan, and many others. 
you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CanadaLandCommons. That's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLandShow.com. Make sure to check out Oppo next week to hear about what's going on in politics today. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Kevin Sexton and Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash Canada.